For this evening, put some hearts on the screen. If you are a part of the We Dare Squad, our global community of do-gooders, put a three in the comments. Put a three in the comments. I want to thank our global partners for We Dare Squad. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We were able to help a mother and some young children on today, thanks to you all. So again, I wanna say thank you, thank you, thank you. It's always uh, exciting, always a good thing to be able to do good and to spread some kindness in the world. If you're interested in joining our community, the link is in the uh, comment section above. I want to welcome those of you who are with us for the first time. This is our Black Table Talk edition of Daring Dialogues. Black Table Talk is a subsidiary of our page, Daring Dialogues. So if you're wondering, where are we? Uh, for most of the week, I put all of our handles up there. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we are on IG Live having these daily conversations about all different kinds of aspects of life. So we cover motivation. On here, we cover all things Black, pertaining to Black people, contain, uh, pertaining to uh, sometimes the African diaspora, what's happening there. Wednesdays, we cover relationships. Thursday, we cover philosophy theology, and just plain old thinking out loud. And Friday, we cover health, wealth, prosperity, business, budgeting, etc. So literally every day of the week, you can find us doing one of those different things. Again, if you want to catch up on our previous broadcast, you can go to our IG live at Daring Dialogues or you can go to our Daring Dialogues page right here on Facebook that has the archive of our videos that we have been doing uh, for several years now. We started out in 2016 doing these broadcasts. And so we've been going at it for a while and we decided to every Tuesday bring our Black Table Talk over to the Black Table Talk page. So again, if you're with us for the first time, I want to thank you for tuning in. Tonight, we are continuing our discussion 
on the book by Ruha Benjamin entitled Race After Technology. But before we dive in for tonight, I do want to um, take a moment to acknowledge um, Sandra Bland. This is, I believe, the sixth anniversary of her passing. Uh, we know that she um, died at the hands of the state. Um, it was ruled a suicide, but most people, including her family, are not convinced of that uh, ruling. I do know that in some recent years, I want to say it was either 2019, maybe 2019 or 2020, that they actually named the road in which he was uh, taken into custody. They actually named that road after her, that um, street after her. And so uh, we do want to keep in mind that, you know, we are still in a state of hopefully uh, everyone around you is still in a sort of a state of being vigilant, right? We're learning how to take care of ourselves, rest, but also at the same time, be vigilant um, concerning our surroundings. We know there's still a lot of Karens and Kens out here trying it. We just saw one uh, at Victoria's Secret, uh, a Victoria's Secret Karen uh, trying, trying us and trying people, right? We still have people out here who are acting out of character, but that doesn't mean that you have to get out of character. So just wanted to um, just take a moment to remember her and also remember those whose names that we are still saying, the advocacy that is still going on and still happening. If y'all will excuse me for just a moment, let me turn this alarm off. <laughs> All right, sorry about that, I do apologize. So we are now going to hop right into Race After Technology. If you're reading along with us, we are in the section entitled Coded Exposure. And we are looking at the technology that fails to see blackness. A lot of people are, I would say, becoming more and more aware of the ways in which technology or the ways in which artificial intelligence sort of makes black people invisible and this book really does a good job of talking about the different areas in which this is occurring it's talking about how these technologies are being formulated and what does that mean for black people not just in the united states but what does that mean for black people globally to be made invisible or unacknowledged by systems that are supposed to be helping us to navigate in the future. So whether it be in a physical space, whether it be um, something as simple as being able to, you know, read your face for financial purposes or financial reasons, this could pose a problem in the future. If people are creating technologies that don't respond to the, the presence of black people. So this is what we're talking about on tonight. I'm going to read a little bit and then I'm going to open it up for those of you who may uh, want to have some discussion around it. If you have a green camera next to your face, that lets you know whether or not you can come onto screen and engage. So if you want to come on to screen and engage, I do have a few guidelines around that. Uh, but when we get to that point, 
I will go over those guidelines before we invite you in. Some technologies fail to see blackness while others render black people hyper visible and expose them to systems of racial surveillance. Exposure in this sense takes on multiple meanings. Exposing film is a delicate process, artful, scientific, entangled in forms of social and political vulnerability and risk. Who is seen and under what terms holds a mirror onto more far-reaching forms of power and inequality? Far from being neutral or simply aesthetic, images have been one of the primary weapons in reinforcing and opposing social oppression. From the development of photography in the Victorian era to the image filtering techniques in social media apps today, visual technologies and racial taxonomies fashion each other. Photography was developed as a tool to capture visually and classify human differences. It also helped to construct and solidify existing technologies, namely the issues of race and assertions of empire, which required visual evidence of stratified differences of people. Unlike older school images, such as paintings and engravings of exotic others that were circulated widely before the Victorian period, photographs held an allure of objectivity, a sense that such images were free from the bias of human imagination, a neutral reflection of the world. Yet such reflections were fabricated according to the demands and desires of those who exercise power and control over others. Some photographs were staged, of course, to reflect white supremacist desires and anxieties. But race as a means of sorting people into groups on the basis of their presumed inferiority or superiority was staged in and of itself long before becoming the object of photography. What of modern photographic industry? Is it more democratic and value neutral than image was in previous era? With the invention of color photography, the positive bias toward lighter skin tones was built into visual technology and presented to the public as neutral. Neutrality comes in the idea that physics is physics, even though the very techniques of color balancing an image reinforce the dominant white ideal. And when it comes to the latest digital techniques, social and political factors continue to fashion computer-generated images. In this visual economy that we're in, race is not only digitized, but heightened and accorded greater value. This particular chapter that we're looking at now focuses on the complex processes involved in exposing race in and through technology and the implications of presenting partial and distorted visions as neutral and universal. Linking historical precedents with contemporary techniques, the different forms of exposure noted in the epigraph serve as a touchstone for considering how the act of viewing something or someone may put the object of vision at risk. This kind of sculptic vulnerability is central to the experience of being racialized. In many ways, philosopher and psychiatrist Franz Fanon's classic Black Skin, White Masks is a meditation on this vulnerability. 
He describes the experience of being looked at but not truly seen by a white child on the streets of Paris. In France's words, he says, look, a Negro. It was an external stimulus that flickered over me as I passed by. I made a tight smile. Look, a Negro. It was true. It amused me. Look, a Negro. The circle was drawing a bit tighter. I made no secret of my amusement. Mama, see the Negro. I'm frightened. Frightened? Frightened? Now they were beginning to be afraid of me. I made up my mind to laugh myself to tears, but laughter had become impossible. This story reveals to us that a key feature of black life in racist societies is the constant threat of exposure and of being misread as a person of color. And that being exposed is also a process of enclosure, a form of suffocating social constriction. In a beautiful essay titled Skin Feeling, the scholar Sophia Samatar reminds us, quote, the invisibility of a person is also the visibility of a race to be constantly exposed as something you are not. Yet in the distorted funhouse reflection of racist conditioning, the white children are the ones who fancy themselves as being at risk. I think back to what just recently happened uh, with the young lady who was filming the woman who attacked her in the Victoria's Secret. Once she realized that, you know, she was the one being recorded and that her behaviors and actions were being recorded, all of a sudden she fancied herself as the victim, even though she was the one that was doing the attacking. Fanon's experience on the streets of Paris foreshadows the technologically mediated forms of exposure that proliferate black life today. Whether we're talking about the widespread surveillance systems built into urban landscapes or the green light sitting above your laptop screen, detection and recognition are easily conflated when the default settings are distorted by racist logics. Finally, as it circulates in the domain of finance, the term exposure quantifies how much one stands to lose in an investment. If, as legal scholar Cheryl Harris argues, that whiteness is a form of property, and if there is a possessive investment in whiteness, then visual technologies offer a site where we can examine how the value of whiteness is underwritten through multiple forms of exposure by which racialized others are forcibly and fictitiously observed but not seen. That said, photography has also been a powerful tool to invest in blackness. Take cultural studies scholar and media activist Yaba Blaze's work on the social, psychic, and public health harms associated with skin bleaching. In addition to her analysis, she created a media campaign called Pretty Dot Period, which counters the false compliment that dark-skinned women must routinely endure you're pretty for a dark-skinned girl. By exposing the gendered racism coded in the qualifier, Blay responds, no, we're pretty, period. The campaign has produced an expansive archive with thousands of images of dark-skinned women all ages across the African diaspora 
whose beauty is not up for debate, period. But divesting away from whiteness in this way too often requires investing in notions of gender, beauty, sexuality, and desire as well. In her talk, Moving Toward the Ugly, A Politic Beyond Desirability, Mia Mingus recognizes the brilliance in our instinct to move toward beauty and desirability, but she also wrestles with the way in which generational effects of capitalism, genocide, violence, oppression, and trauma settles into our bodies. She calls for a shift from a politic of desirability to one of simply the magnificence of a body that shakes, that spills out, that takes up space, that needs help, that might slink or limp, drool, curls over on itself, that are bodies that have been coded not just for desirability, but also what some may seem or say is undesirable or ugly. Moving beyond this politic that you have to be beautiful in order to be recognized and respected as a human being and moving into loving even what we might consider ugly. Respecting ugly for how it has shaped us and also has been exiled. Seeing its power, seeing the reasons it has been feared, seeing it for what it is, she says, some of our greatest strength because we all do it at times. We all run from ugly. Her intervention exposes the effects of not just racism, but ableism, capitalism, heterosexism, and more. A multiple exposure that like the ghost images that appear on photographs haunts our discussion of race and technology. Like Yaba Blay, Mingus is not only an observer, she reminds us that those who are multiplied, exposed, also engage in liberatory forms of resistance and recoding. Dark skin, beautiful and ugly, magnificent and human. Exposing whiteness. The most concrete technique through which whiteness has fashioned photography is what's called the Shirley cards. Now we, I think we looked at this before, but the Shirley cards were produced by Kodak from the 1950s to the 1990s. The cards were a part of film exposure and they used the image of a white woman to standardize the exposure process in film. So if you think about it, all film exposure, all color coding, was set to how well a white person, a white woman filmed in the photograph. It did not take into consideration the other skin tone values in photography. I'm gonna say that again. From the 1950s all the way into the 1990s, film exposure, photography exposure, was set to the color of a white female which is why if you go back and look at some old images, for those of you who might have um, some older magazines, fashion magazines, you might notice that there's not much attention paid to lighting and shadow and exposure on the people who might've been in the advertising, in the photograph that are not white. And this is why, okay? 
Since the model's skin was set as the norm, darker skinned people in photographs would routinely be underexposed. In short, skin tone biases were embedded in the actual apparatus of how the visual reproduction was occurring. As one photographer recently put it, it turns out film stock's failures to capture dark skin are not a technical issue, it was a choice. This also implies we can choose otherwise. Photographers developed a range of fixes for underexposure in order to calibrate the color. For instance, they could add more lighting to darker subjects, but these only worked for images containing a single variation. If more than one skin tone was represented in an image, such fixes were harder to employ. At least three social shifts propelled more fundamental changes to this form of discriminatory design. As public schools in the United States began desegregating and students of different skin tones were being photographed for yearbooks in the same frame, the technical fixes that could be employed when a black child was photographed alone were not useful. In particular, black parents objecting to the fact that their children's facial features were rendered blurry demanded higher quality images. But the photographic industry did not fully take notice until companies that made and manufactured brown products like chocolate and wooden furniture began complaining that their photographs did not depict their goods with enough detail showcasing the varieties of chocolate and the grains in wood. Finally, a U.S.-based visual technology circulated in non-European countries, the bias toward lighter skin tones grew ever more apparent. Competition in Asian markets propelled Kodak to follow Fuji in ethnicizing Shirley cards. So, I want you to take a look at the first Shirley card that I'm going to show you. And this is what Kodak was basing all of its visuals on at first. This is where photography was initially. Okay. All the colors and all the details and how, how well things were rendered was based on Shirley. <laughs> okay. But again, it took furniture companies and chocolate companies saying, hey, when we photograph our product, we can't tell the difference between because everything looks the same color. And most of us know if you love chocolate, all chocolate does not look alike, right? Some of us got some milk chocolate. Some of us have some, like me, I like special dark, okay? That's more uh, cocoa based with no milk in it. The, the companies were saying our products all look like mud, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. We can't tell the difference when we photograph what is what. It's not differentiating the shades of chocolate, neither in furniture nor in food. So I want you to think about that. It took people complaining about the fact that they couldn't tell the difference in color on inanimate objects because they were losing money before they decided to do this for the actual human beings. Think about that.
1996, this is how recent this is, okay? In 1996, Kodak came out with a new Shirley card and they called it Diverse Shirley. <laughs> so this is their new, this was new in 1996. This was the Shirley card they came up with to help people or to showcase that they were going to make a commitment to changing the technology so that you could see very clearly the distinguishing features of each person and their skin tone. So for all the people out there who shot, who shouting, it don't matter what color you are. Actually it did <laughs> because in advertising, if people can't tell who you are, if people can't distinguish features, if it's a product like chocolate or furniture, if people can't distinguish between, you know, a, a walnut versus another kind of wood, all of the wood was looking the same in their advertising. It was causing people to lose money. Okay. So we're going to stop there for this evening. We're coming about to the halfway mark here and let's, let's talk it. Let's have a little bit of a conversation. If you want to jump into the conversation, please type I'm in, in the chat and we will see if we can bring you on. You must have a green camera showing next to your face in order to be able to be brought onto the screen. I don't control that. Uh, Facebook does. If you are with us via anchor tonight, I want to say thank you for listening in and tuning in. Please leave us an audio message in response to tonight's podcast. I want to thank you for your time and attention. Take care and God bless.